Hey guys, how's it going? Um, got a really special guest here on, on the new Beyond the Swing podcast. Um, got Coach Dan Papp. I'm sure many coaches have, have heard of Coach Papp. Um, maybe not so much in the tennis world, um, although as, as you'll, you'll notice, Coach Papp has a lot of background in our sport as well. But he does have a, a strong Canadian connection, so that's that's positive for me. He helped uh, Donovan Bailey uh, win gold medal at the '96 Games in the 100 meters. So we all, as Canadians, we all know Donovan. Uh, Bruni Surin was another athlete that, that Coach Paff um, had coached from Canada. Uh, Greg Rutherford. Coach Paff has had a lot of success with with numerous athletes across various sports, athletics being the primary sport. It's really special for me to have Coach Paff on here as well, just because he's been such a, such a great mentor to me over the last five, six years. Uh, I mean, just countless emails and phone calls and connections. Um, so I've been, I've been very appreciative. So uh, welcome, Coach Paff. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Is there anything else that uh, I, should, I should let others know about you? Uh, you've been very kind. <laughs> One other point here, Coach Paff has, has, is, is currently working with, with Altus, so many of you probably have heard of Altus. Um, it's an athletics training facility, but also they have really strong roots in, in coach education. Um, coach, is that primarily your focus these days, is, is mostly coach education and mentorship? Yeah, I, I coach five or six athletes still pretty direct, and I probably advise another dozen or so, and then I, I advise, counsel, probably a couple dozen coaches and therapists. So a lot of uh, what I would call auditing, SWOT analysis, uh, mentoring, network building, things of that nature. Most of my work at Altus is in coaching education in a variety of realms, sports medicine and speed and changing direction work and programming you know just anything under the umbrella that would in, you know involve coaching education uh, we we launched a course need for speed that deals with all court and field sports and things so it's a pretty diverse portfolio so a lot of the work is uh, mentorships we have uh, three mentorships running concurrently right now and in those mentorships, it's a pretty broad audience. It's coaches, it's therapists, it's high performance personnel and directors, uh, small business owners, you know, that deal in sport and sport specifics. So busy day and do a lot of uh, return to play work, you know, in various professional sport leagues around the world. And some of that's tied to Altus, some of that's tied to my personal consulting business. Yeah. I'm I'm sure you're you're very busy. I mean, you're always doing so much in the field of sports performance, even outside of your your main sport of athletics. Um, it's it's actually fun. I have a question for you because back a couple of years ago, I I was being coached by a weightlifting coach. He was a Cuban weightlifting coach. He had he had done pretty well. I think he won um, Pan Am Games in the '80s and. And he was just always around the gym, and he was always coaching. And I asked him one day, you know, is what what else do you do, or do you do anything for for fun outside of this? And his response was, "This this is fun for me. This is my play. Is that sort of how do you have hobbies outside of this, or is this something that just it just feels so much like play to you that it's just easy and and you can do it all day long?" Well, I do have other hobbies. I love to read and I love to fly fish and uh, you know, I love spending time with my family, my grandkids, things like that. But sport has always been, you know, a passion, uh, you know, a hobby. You know, I tell my wife all the time, I get paid to play. Mm. And uh, there's been very few days where I've hit the floor in the morning and said man I dread doing what I got to do today I'm, I'm pretty blessed that way and I like puzzles and you know complex uh paradigms to operate in so it's kind of a vocation a passion a hobby you know all of the above mm, absolutely I, I feel uh, the same way most days and I guess the more you go also the more you kind of find 
your way in the sport field would you say that you've kind of adapted over the years to 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 kind of figure out where you lie in in the sports performance field well i i would probably call my career accidental like every stage of, of the career you know chaos or a unique set of circumstances or whatever forced me to develop skill sets and a toolbox and an understanding of when to use the tools and how and for how long you know so it's kind of like bookstores i'm going in a bookstore looking for a book i just go up and down the aisles and you know thumb books and you know i'll walk out with some of the craziest books you could ever imagine but somehow i see relevance to what i do so my journey's, like I said, been kind of accidental, you know, like working with NFL players. I had a friend at LSU that was a receivers coach. He had a guy that they were hoping to get drafted, but he was slow. And I worked with him and he nailed the combine and got drafted and had an incredible career. And that started the, the floodgates on NFL players looking for help with speed or return from injuries. So, you know, total accident, if you will, you know, kicked me into that realm of work. You mentioned, you know, you like solving puzzles, and I'm guessing that was probably one of those puzzles. We're living in a time now where, I mean, you got a lot of puzzles. You, you send out a weekly email, um, and recently, through Altus, and recently you had, you've been talking a lot about this remote coaching puzzle that we're kind of living in these days. Can can you talk a little bit about how difficult it is and how much, how, what are some differences and similarities between remote coaching and, and in-person coaching? Well, I, I don't think you can ever replace direct coaching. You know, there's so much feedback and opportunity for discussion and prompts for discussion, whether it's debrief or feedback or induction before the workout and, you know, just, seen totality of energy and effort and expression in a session you know you can't replace that with zoom practices like i do zoom practices with the athletes i work with directly but we're only getting snippets like i might see an acceleration workout one day and a weight room workout another day and a plyometric i never see the totality hmm. so it's kind of like a blood test i'm getting a snapshot of that patient that day that hour it's not telling me what's going on overall so those are the biggest limitations but you can build teams around it. So like Johnny Peacock, my Paralympic sprinter, you know, world record holder, couple time gold medalist. His therapist is really involved and his SC coach is really involved. So we got a lot of heads on the project and they can video different aspects that, you know, just Johnny and I couldn't video mm -hmm. and give us feedback. So I think a lot of it's how you build the team around the person that you're uh, working with remotely. I think remote coaching has some plus sides if we step back and really ergonomically analyze the process. So it's forcing coaches and athletes and performance staff to identify essentials or first principles and rank them hierarchically, you know, because we've only got so much time and so much skill sets to feedback and, and execute. So it's forced us to simplify and order significance and you know, probably reduce what I call some of the noise. Mm. Yeah, and I guess some have done a better job than others. I remember, I, I believe I had asked you this around, you know, when athletes were getting back, returning to sport in 2020 after, after the first lockdown. And I was asking you because there's, we had seen so many injuries in, in tennis and across various sports. And one of the things you mentioned was, or two, two things you really said was programming and not enough specific work. Um, those were two big factors. Can, can, you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so I, I audit a lot of centers and sports and coaches and athletes around the world. So I look for trends and patterns, kind of a fractal geometry overview of things. And so you start seeing, you know, paradigms people operated in and, you know, what the gaps that occurred from a SWOT analysis. And so one of the things we saw is medical inputs drop rapidly with these lockdowns. So 
you know, a, a player that was used to getting medical inputs every day, maybe they were getting a once every two weeks or something, and there was no contingency plans for self-therapy or, you know, triage type therapy situations. Uh, programming design was wrecked, you know, like I had hockey guys locked down during the playoffs, so I had them in their driveway with rollerblades and their stick and a tennis ball dodging their kids and their dogs to keep you know, cognitive field operations up. I had pole vaulters running in the backyard and grabbing on the tree branches and swinging. And so I think a lot of people did a piss poor job of plan B training, contingency planning. Some of the big rocks we saw, people went back to try to build a base, you know, whatever the heck that means, or they overcooked their biases. So some kids that were locked down were really locked down. So they were doing like hours of body weight circuits and ab circuits and things like that. And they biased their body mm -hmm. over time to the type of work they were doing. And the specificity point, you know, that that was the trickier branch of, of lockdown programming. It's like on our plan B, how close can we get to plan A? And I remember seeing videos from the Australian Open where people were in lockdown and they were serving against a mattress in their hotel room and doing body weight squats with a hotel chair above their head. Right. Some of these players got, got it that plan B should be really close to plan A. Yeah, exactly. And and it's it's interesting because this this specific work, I mean, beyond even the lockdowns and COVID is is somewhat misunderstood, right? What you're talking about is specific work is there's a physiological and structural cost and adaptation to doing just your sport, playing your sport, right? So is that what you, you mean by that? That's truly the most specific form of physical training for your sport is just engaging in your sport. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I use the example like, you know, people get this idea, the aerobic engine and aerobic capacity to support, you know, work in court field sports. But I'll argue like Olympic weightlifters lift 10 to 12 sets, 90 minutes, three times a day, six, seven days a week, 50 weeks out of the year. They don't run a step, but they have the aerobic and mitochondrial capacity to do that kind of work. Gymnasts train five, six hours a day in the gym day after day after day, they don't do aerobic classic conditioning or interval training or hit training. NBA basketball players, let's be honest, they don't train. They just play the game. So there's a conditioning, a specificity of conditioning of building capacities for specific tasks that occur in scrimmaging or direct practice or in competitions. One of the things that killed us in our sport was the density pattern of competitions disappeared. We, we had people going to the Olympic Games that might have had five competitions in 18 months, where normally they would be doing 20 or 30 competitions a season. Well, that's a big shift in competition specificity. So the level of output in a competition, I don't care how fired up you get in practice, you're seldom going to match those intensities, those work to rest ratios or whatnot. So I, I think the competition specific stimuli for transference and the practice specificity transference for building these specific work capacities were very difficult to obtain in lockdown settings. Mm. So should we in general from, you know, kind of going off this, this concept, should we be doing a better job even, even as coaches outside of uh, skill coaches of monitoring these, these workloads on court? I mean, should we be counting ground strokes and serve volumes and, and, and trying to figure that out rather than, you know, because doing a landmine press is not going to help protect my shoulder if I haven't been progressively going through serving, serving sessions, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think we leave a lot of money on the table that I, I call it ergonomics, the science of study of work. Do, do we step back and ergonomically analyze what's going on in the athlete's day, whether it's practice specific or menu items in practice or off the court activities or 
stressors or what have you, are, are we doing a good job of ergonomically analyzing the process? So I work with a women's soccer team in the UK Premier League, and they use a lot of GPS data, and they played three games in nine days. And one of the coaches that I work with there does uh, a mental fatigue survey every day. And the mental fatigue survey was saying, we're in big trouble. But the GPS data was saying, no, we're fine. We're not really doing much between the games. Mm. And by the third game, they were a wreck because the mental fatigue just wrecked the process. And the injury rate in that third game was off the chart. And it wasn't because of conditioning or necessarily accumulated fatigue. It was the mental fatigue. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think we've got to do a better job of identifying anchor points that we can monitor. I think with the advent of IMUs, you know, like in shoes and whatnot, I think we will have better access, easier access, uh, logistically uh, simpler access to this kind of data. I'll give you an example. I have a running back in the NFL. On Thursdays, they do goal line red zone work. So his GPS data says he doesn't run very far or very fast. But if you look at his IMU data, this guy did 90 cuts, high speed, hmm. huge force cuts. So at one level, the GPS data says, shit, you didn't do anything today. But the IMU data said you got crushed today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we had we had data on, on Mark Pullman's at the Oz Open, and it was, you know, he had covered, uh, I think it was, four about four kilometers in a five set match which is i mean you can go on a four kilometer run and it's it's not going to tax you nearly as much as what you're experiencing in that type of level a competitive setting where the amount of change of directions plus the cognitive load that you're talking about just being so in tune every single point um it was unfortunate because he had won that match and then because of rain delays he had to come back the next day and get right into another five set match. And you could just see just totally flat, like just nothing left in the tank. Well, and I, th I think some people, well-meaning and well-studied people, they, they look at physiology a little bit uh, too vague in my opinion. So, you know, I could do a, a 5K run, but it's at a real slow pace at a pretty constant posture and a pretty serial movement screen. So the metabolic cost of that task at that speed with those moves is X. Now you change that to a 4K total coverage in a game where there's multiple change in directions, spikes in speeds, walking moments, standing moments, so on and so forth. If you look at the context of work ergonomics in that match, there's a 4K run in the woods, it's apples and oranges. And do you think because of these, these these stressors especially from for field court sports like tennis where the change of direction demands like you're saying they may only have to run one to three meters but that change of direction or those two moments of change of direction you know starting breaking and then getting back um i mean it's 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 extremely stressful can we is there a way that we need to progress these this type of training i've recently i'm just I'm thinking out loud here, but recently we've been doing a lot more kind of light hitting sessions in, in, in between our kind of more intense or normal type sessions. Is there, is there some benefit to this? I know in track, you guys do kind of a high, low structure in terms of your, um, your programming. Well, I think pre preparing an athlete for, for stress is, is a, foundational tenant and component of coaching right mm -hmm. so we use the term vaccinate are they vaccinated at enough level to weather the storm when we throw them into the arena and whether it's a return to play or off season or whatnot you know what are we doing to build bridges to that level how, how are we developing these batteries so i use the analogy of batteries athletes have mental batteries cognitive emotional energy system batteries, immune system batteries, soft tissue structure batteries, the dynamics, the biophysics. And these batteries run in series in parallel with one another. If one battery is totally deficient, it starts pulling energy from these other batteries. Now all the boats 
sink. So how are we managing that battery conservation concept mm -hmm. to me is kind of one of my first principles. And I, you know, like in the NFL, we do a lot of things in the off season, different serpentine runs at different speeds, at different angles, uh, do different change in direction work, you know, 45 degree cuts, 90 high speed to a radical cut, high speed to a slight cut, you know, understanding the spectrum of stressors that they're going to encounter. And if they're not getting that in practice or in the games, you know, how do we microdose that in during the season or make it an emphasis in the off season to better prepare these athletes? Hmm. That's, that's, that's quite interesting. If the volume of play though is, is quite high, how do you address that? I mean, if they're already, let's say they're on the court 15 to 20 hours a week, can we microdose some of these elements still, or we have to be really careful with what we do? Well, it depends on the, the work capacity abilities of the athlete and the structure of the program and the structure of the competition schedule and so on and so forth. You know, my first stop with a, you know, a skills coach is, can we design certain practice menu items in such a way that we're attacking mm these various entities or gaps that are occurring. So say a person hits an opponent and it's a baseline game and they're just playing long, long series, but it's all on the baseline. There's not much network or, you know, change in direction on that X axis. Well, say they get three of those kind of opponents in a row. Well, now you're starting to get a decay in the battery of change in direction, rapid acceleration, rapid deceleration. So if we're going to do some court work the next day before another opponent, can we structure the workout where we kind of get some microdosing in there, or at least some what we call activation energy into those systems so that they're back online or we delay that rate of decay somewhat? Yeah, and it's, uh, that's, that's critical. And I think trying to think of these things from a tennis coach's perspective, because we're we're trying to develop skills and tactics, but we the way you're taught, we have, have to be really uh, in tune with what's going on from a physical, physiological perspective as well. Well, tactics and strategy and skill are super important, and, and they carry the freight in, in, in your sport. But if the tissues fail, mm. yeah, what do you have? Yeah. No, you still, the body's still a vehicle to, to be able to do what you got to do. Well, I, you know, I talked to a lot of tennis players and coaches over the years, over the decades, and, and injuries and frustration with injuries and compromised competitions and practices due to injuries usually is what derails the career or destroys the confidence. Let's be honest. That's mm -hmm. the elephant in the room. But too yeah. many of us say the injury was bad luck. Mm. misfortunate Bl <laughs> blame game blame it on something else yeah 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 and it's you probably i think you've mentioned this in in sports like swimming as well there's this culture of you got to put in a lot of hours you have to be on the court every day three to five hours long but you're you've kind of you've you figured that one out a long time ago where it's just not possible to to do that at a high level, especially as you get up the ranks. Maybe if you're a 10 year old, you can play all day. It's just fun you're playing. But when you're a senior athlete, uh, that's no longer the case. Like there needs to be this management, right? Of, of highs and lows and training periods of, you know, different, um, you know, time on court needs to be, needs to, needs to diminish because the quality and the intensity is, is, is increasing. Well, I use the, this battery system idea in this ergonomic SWOT analysis idea. So if I've got a junior kid in Montreal playing local tournaments and provincial that lives at home and everything's in the bubble and the coach is in the bubble and the training system's great and all of that, there's a certain amount of competitive stress. But if I'm top 10 world, I'm flying all over the world. I'm dealing with sponsors, agents, interviews circadian rhythm disturbances 
lot higher level of opposition, more diversity of opposition and all that. The load on my cognitive emotional batteries is a lot higher as a ranked player. So if you take this battery idea and those batteries are being drained off, how can you have the physical batteries power to, to train like you did at 18 years old? It's impossible. I, I guess a lot of that training can be, you know, you've already mentioned microdosing, but you have a concept called the, the rollover training paradigm where you cycle through different workouts, which you've deemed that these are the essential menu items that we need to get in overall. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the rollover and how, how it came about and how it's, it's uh, you know, maybe in a sport like tennis, it should be used predominantly just because we don't know when, how deep a player is going to make it in a tournament, you know, what their travel arrangements are like and so on. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people probably use the rollover paradigm without realizing it. <laughs> so if you look like in the NFL, you know, the typical game week on Sunday, Monday's a film review, walkthrough kind of stuff, Tuesday's mandatory off day, Wednesday and Thursday are their hard days, Friday's more of a walkthrough setup timing, Saturday's travel and another walkthrough. So they're basically getting after two days out of six with the seventh being the game. So they got three big hits a week. Hmm. Well, that's a three day rollover because the other days are like active rest or restorative or recovery. So in essence, the NFL has been doing three day rollover for a long time. Hmm. And then you go to the NBA or the NHL where they're playing four or five games a week. You know, what do they do? Like, in those in-between days, well, it depends on travel, the time of the game, so on and so forth, but they may have a long scrimmage on one of their down days, and then the next time it's it's all skill or whatnot, so they've identified essential sessions, and they just plug them in. The idea behind a rollover is it should be able to expand or contract to the environment and, and the needs, so if I've got time off, maybe I do days one, two, and three, take a rest day, do one, two, and three again, cycle it through. But like in track and field, say we're in a Diamond League meeting environment in the summer, the Diamond League meets are on Friday. So Monday, maybe we do day one. Tuesday, maybe we do therapy and active recovery. Day On Wednesday, we do day two. Thursday, we travel, do a pre-meet. Friday, we do the meet. Saturday, we do a recovery. Sunday, we're off, get some more therapy. We might not get to day three till the following Monday. Mm -hmm. So this expansion or contraction gives you versatility and pliability with your program. But it mandates that you identify essential sessions and essential menu items, and you rank them accordingly. And you put a power exponent to it in order to manipulate the matrix. And and do these workouts? Are you able to still develop certain qualities? Are you are yeah. some are just being maintained, or there is some development happening? Well, so in our competition, three day rollover cycle in track and field, uh, we've had some athletes that can stay on that kind of format for up to three to four months, and we've had people actually get PRs in certain strength and power expressions at mm. the end of the season. For others, it's just slowed the rate of decay. And part of the puzzle is there's this phenomenon called uh, refractory uh, science. So in cardiac rehab, you know, what do you need to do on the return from surgery and what qualities diminished, what biological functions diminished, how, how long does it take for them to get back online at, at acceptable proficiencies? So that's called refractory science. So do we know if we stop doing a menu item for a while and there's some decay, do we know how many sessions it takes to get that back online? Hmm. Not a lot of research on that. Now I've had people retire, for example, for a year and then decide to come back in third or fourth session in the weight room, they're right back to where they were. So their refractory curves pretty steep. I've had other people out for six months from a radical surgery and it's taken them a few months to get back on some of the menu items, but other menu items came back on pretty quick. 
So if we don't know this refractory curve science, we're not aware of looking at it, you know, we could say, well, science says it takes eight months to get back from this. Well, not, not necessarily. No, I guess it's pretty individual specific as well. I'm just looking at it from a skill perspective and we have some players will take the weekend off and on Monday, they don't look like the same player that they did on Friday, whereas some can take two months off and they haven't lost really a beat. Genetics, you know, cognitive file system development, you know, negative transference and interference, confidence. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, say I'm an athlete and I had a long weekend off and I got drunk as shit and I slept like hell and I ate at McDonald's. Well, first day back probably might have some viruses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now take the other athlete three days off, got extra sleep, ate really well, recharged the batteries, come back on Monday, might be a, really hitting on all eight cylinders. Yeah, it might have, you know. I think skill is can be similar to uh, to strength training. We don't always we, we think of skill as we need to be improving on the on that particular task that we're working on, but there there is a latency period, is is there not? Yeah, I mean with school skill acquisition or skill refinement, you know, there's those stages you stimulate, you adapt, and then you, you need a period to stabilize the the new operational management and then you got to go out and let's test it with actualization moments and i think too many of us just get caught up in that stimulate adapt as soon as we see some adaptation we change task or change directions on the compass and that athlete truly hasn't stabilized that concept and they definitely can't actualize it in a variety of environments I'd like to get get kind of deeper into some of the skill, but I, I also want to talk a little bit about the serve specifically, just because of your knowledge, not only in serving and striking and throwing sports, uh, but you, I mean, you're a throws coach. You were a throws coach, or you, I don't know if you still work with, with throwers. Yeah, I do. So uh, let's kind of start from the ground when it comes to the serve the summation of forces that that principle that can be applied to to any any type of throwing or striking action is that correct yes where we have you know we produce more forces from the ground and and then as we go up the the kinetic chain the force requirements kind of they they diminish but the velocities, do they get, they get faster? Is that correct? Well, I, I how think- do you, How do you look at that? Some of my heuristics is, first of all, vectors. You want as many vectors as possible going in the direction of mm. purpose. So if I've got one limb over here and another limb over here and this limb going this way and that way, now I've got diverse vectors. So I've reduced the summation of vector problem. Mm. Force is transmitted through the body. So it's kind of like if you drop a rock in a lake, there's ripple effect that transfers out. So as we apply force in, from the center of body, it radiates in both directions, down through the, the legs and the feet into the ground, but it's also radiating through the upper body. And there's this percussion of forces and transference of forces that are occurring. And these forces, if the vectors line up and these forces are synchronized, you can get a, a higher output. If these forces are disparate or unsynchronized, then you got what we call energy leaks, or you know, we're not getting bang for the buck, if you will, with the movement expression. So getting vectors headed in the same direction and, and using joints and body parts and segments in a synchronized manner truly affect the outcome of force production. Hmm. So you have to have, there has to be some force. You need to be able to learn how to produce force, but at the same time, it doesn't really matter how much you can squat really if you're not segmenting and sequencing at the right time and in the right order. Yeah, so 
using joints in a synchronized, timely manner, you know, is a critical KPI measurement in almost all power expression. So if we look at an Olympic lifter, you know, the joint extension moments and durations and velocities, there's a unique sequencing and, and contribution that occurs in, in those movements. And if you look at any tennis serve, you know, you, you can monitor hip extension rates and angles, knee extension, ankle, and, and you can sync that with the rotation of the shoulder and the extension of the upper body. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, I know in the throw circles, people get, well, they're off the ground when they're hitting the implement. Well, the force has already been transmitted. Mm. Mm. But yeah, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of examples, guys that can lift the weight room, but can't express it. And if you go into like a good colleague of mine, Matt Jordan, does a lot of research on skiers in Calgary and rehab from, you know, knee surgeries and things of that nature. You know, one of his heuristics is, you know, it's more than strength. You know, he's got athletes on return to play that exhibit at or above previous levels of strength, but they can't execute the movements. They're still compensating or guarding. So this expression, this synchronization, this harmony of how we use the segments is mm -hmm. critical. I can be strong as a rock, but if I can't express it, you know, it's kind of like this Nordic hamstring craze that people are on. You know, we're, we're taking a one joint, slow eccentric exercise and thinking we're going to bulletproof the hamstring. Hmm. You know, it just defies logic to me. Yeah. So I want to ask you, these are, these are some angular velocities, different joints during the tennis serve. Uh, and then I have a couple questions concerning them. So from the moment of max external rotation, from max external rotation, we get anterior trunk tilt at about 300 degrees a second. Pelvis, the pelvis then rotates at about 440 degrees a second. The upper torso is at 870. Then it's the shoulder, inter, inter, shoulder internal rotation. For males, it's 2400. For females, it's about 1400. We get elbow extension at 1500. Wrist flexion is the final segment at close to 2000 degrees per second. So a couple questions here. So one is, well, the only joint that actually, only key, key joint player not here is knee extension. So the one question is how, how important, these are peak values for, for those that are interested, peak um, angular velocity values. Knee extension is not there because that that occurs prior to this max external rotation. This is where your you know your arm is back um, just before you're, you've you've extended the, the lower body, but it's just before you're gonna rotate and sling the the racket through at through the contact. So how important is knee extension in helping drive all these other um, all these other segments? And then wh why do we see such a gap uh, in females yeah, versus males at shoulder internal rotation? This was the only, only segment that there was this type of gap. So it's 2,400 to, to about 1,400. Oh, well, it's a PhD topic here, but <laughs> I, I can warn you of a landmine. So throwing coaches, whether it's javelin, discus, shot, have, have argued and debated and battled this knee extension paradigm or issue to death. What we know in throwing, baseball pitching, quarterback throwing, uh, track and field throwing events, is during that moment, th there's translation. Mm. So we, we've got to look at this three-dimensionally. So on the serve, the, the athlete's not just working in that vertical axis. There's also translation on the x-axis. And so the drive of the legs kind of has two tasks. It, it has to affect rotation and translation. And there's a timing and a ratio of the rotational dynamics and the translational dynamics 
And so we may see less extension in the y-axis mm -hmm. if the athlete's biased to translation. So people that translate more are going to have less rotational dynamics. People mm -hmm. that rotate more are going to have less translational dynamics. So the person that stays at home and kind of rotates, they're going to have less extension. Mm. The person that's translating is going to have earlier and more extension at the knee joint. So some of it's dependent on your bias on how you use your body during the surf. On the women's issue, I think the research is pretty prevalent on upper body strength, whatever it may be, power output, absolute strength, isometric strength, yielding strength. There's a genetical gap there. Can we close that gap through training? I think we can reduce the gap somewhat, but, uh, you know, it's just, you know, like in track and field in women, uh, 100 meters, you know, basically the, the, the elite field's in the 1090 zone. And the guys are in the 990 zone. You're not going to close that gap. Hmm. I think what you do is you do this SWOT analysis. You look at all these other factors, and then you see what the gap is there. And then it's like, if I close the gap, does that negatively or positively affect these other variables? So that's always a litmus test. If I got a hypothesis, I'm going to emphasize or push this component. How is that affecting the matrix? Mm. So if we close that gap, but it reduces, say, shoulder rotation velocities or angles, is that a win? Because mm. the correlation is if, if we have, this was the difference. Males serve faster because they're able to, rotate their shoulder internally faster than females. So they're able to impart more racket head speed at contact, right? Yeah, well, I'd be curious, you know, look at some of the absolute force production values, you know, off the ground, like serving on force plates. I think men would have, you know, another gap there because of the summation yeah. of forces and the knock-on effect. Yeah, absolutely. So. This, this is actually pretty, this is an interesting topic for me, uh, the surf, it's just, I, I find that it's the one skill in tennis that it's more closed off than other skills in a way, so we can analyze it. Sometimes we overanalyze it, but let's say, and, and because this, this isn't just a, you know, biomechanics issue because motor learning from what, you know, I've learned from you is, is, is this how can we change mechanics without actually talking about mechanics and things like that? So I'll give you a little example. I have a, I have a player, which I'm not going to say any names here, but they're from that moment they're when they're going up to serve their torso is, is quite square. So their horizontal horizontal adduction angle is like 45 degrees. Whereas for someone who's on time, it's closer to like five, 10 degrees. So this is putting a lot more, sorry, this is in the negative direction, negative direction. So it's putting a lot more stress on that shoulder joint. And we're, we're losing, like you had said earlier, this timing or this uh, compactness, right? The summation of forces, the forces now have left and now I'm, oh, I gotta catch up and try to serve with just my arm or more yeah. of my arm. How can we, from a motor learning perspective, skill acquisition, how can we start to kind of help athletes, help, help players time these segments um, a little bit better? What do you guys, what have you learned over the years through throwing? There must be a similar action, right? Where yeah. they're off time, they're open too much or too soon. Well, I think there's two parallel streams of uh, maybe hypotheses here. One, is there physiological drivers that are inhibiting this process? Mm. So what is the mobility of the spine? What is the relationship of mobility to the spine to the mobility of the shoulder? You know, mm. are there pelvic issues that are having a knock-on effect on limiting the rotation? So there's a lot of variables that could be driving physiological 
barriers driving the inability. Hmm. And it could be from previous training biases. It could be from injury compensation. It could be from previous uh, strategies on how to serve, you know, like, uh, I'm trying to teach my granddaughter 10 years old how to serve. Well, it's pretty rudimentary and pretty basic and pretty limited in movement. But I also work with a 16 year old state level tennis player, and, and she's able to obviously use bigger bandwidths on a lot of these moves. So some of this, you know, is what I call biological impedance or inhibitors. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is through skill acquisition, you know, we chunk information and cues and timing moments in these files in our brain. And so there's a, a, a branch uh, of motor behavior research called alarm theory. So we set alarms. So from the time we stop bouncing the ball to toss the ball, that's, that's an alarm. So if I bounce real slow or how many times and then I toss, that could affect my toss height. So if I'm over aroused and bounce real quick and shorter than normal, I'm probably going to have a longer than normal toss because I'm going to stay on this gross alarm system from contact to the ground to max peak height on the toss. Mm -hmm. So that's one alarm. Then we have these alarms like, okay, the toss is up. I've got certain rotational dynamics. And these all are set on alarms. Hmm. So if for years and years, I've had real tight alarms and I need to expand those alarms to get more range. Well, now I've got to build constraints and practice or in queuing to expand those alarm moments. Hmm. So like in when we walk, our, our hand pendulums as we walk. So the pendulum's pretty short, our elbow's fairly extended, and the elbow flexion and extension kind of mimics the knee flexion and extension as we walk. So these two pendulums, the leg and the arm, kind of swing like this. Well, then when we jog, there's increased elbow flexion, and the pendulum changes, and then as we sprint, changes again. So like in world-class sprinters, they block hand above the shoulder and then they, as they drive down and back, the arm fully extends and then they block behind those hips. Well, those landmark positions are alarm set points. And if they wanna run faster, they still hit those set points, but they swing through those moments quicker. So they learn how to manipulate the alarms Sometimes we have to move the alarms. Sometimes we have to ex change the movement expression between the alarms. So can we get an, an athlete to focus on a particular alarm or landmark that's somewhere in the middle of the serve or a skill? Well, you know, it's again, you got to there's negative inhibition. There's, you know, chaos theory because there's too much thinking or the alarm nudge was too much too soon mm. so you know a lot of times i'll play with the the speed of the toss or the height of the toss or the angle of the toss or you know i'll subtly change the stance mm. so how you're manipulating these various constraints will ultimately have effect on changing the alarm setup or the, the alarm dynamics so you can imagine if I if I have both feet square when I, I start my serve, there's a certain alarm sequence. Now, if I stagger my right foot back, say 10 centimeters, that's a little different alarm sequence. Now, if I really stagger back like 30 inch or 30 centimeter stagger, that's a different alarm. So kind of motor behavior, we want to build a toolbox where we vary forces, velocities, angles, angles of insult, duration, so on and so forth. So I think there's some value at certain times of the training year or certain moments of the training session where we're varying these constraints and just monitor, do we get positive change or negative change or confusion? Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's extremely interesting. And in the case of the serve, we often see this opening up, this early hip and trunk kind of forward rotation. It's it's kind of this, the, the, the tossing arm is prematurely dropping. 
So if we, we actually, that's one of the things we do is we try to change the stance a little bit first, or we cue to have the arm, the tossing arm kind of more along the baseline rather than some athletes have it in front. And, and yeah, so, so what you're doing is changing movement constraints to affect the alarm system. Mm -hmm. So I'm helping this uh, neighbor's daughter in tennis. You know, I said, she's a state level player. And so I go to some of the games and I watch and it's always interesting whether people are what side of the court they're serving on and the efficacy of their serve. Mm -hmm. So in high school, you'll see a lot of people the four court serve excellent. Not so good on the other side. Yeah. Well, they've just changed their their foot postures or their pelvic postures or their even their toss because of where they're standing on the court. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. We see that all the time. For me personally, I prefer serving on the ad side. And that just feels more natural. And then on the do side, I have more more trouble. Because and when I look at myself serve, I'm you know I can already see that I'm I'm opened up a lot sooner than, than on the other side. So, well, well you see it in baseball all the time. Some guys have power to right field. Some people have power to left field. Mm. Yeah, those those are constraints. Those are environmental constraints that influence their bias for power expression. Mm. Now. This is where it goes wrong because, you know, you'll have a guy just, you know, killing it in, in MLB and they get some wise batting coach and we want more power to left field. Well, this guy's been a right field power guy his whole career. And then all of a sudden he can't hit squat. So how do we, how do we opt? If we do see get in tennis, you need to be serving well on both sides. So I guess it's, because some people get, or even players get really fixed. Like, I've always been serving this way. I have to have my foot position this way. But when they're serving different serves and on different sides, we may have to be okay with positioning ourselves differently. Well, I think that's where, you know, tech comes in. What's the velocity? What's the accuracy? What's the consistency? You know, you build a case. I think what, what goes wrong a lot of times is the change is too radical. So, uh, you know, what I would do is I'd look at, okay, what side of the court are they really efficient are and what, what are the metrics and dynamics and landmark positions and moments. And then I'd go to the side they're not so good and I'd see where are the gaps. Hmm. And then I would, I would nudge one or two of the gaps. I wouldn't try to change all of the gaps. Hmm. So, I call it the art of the nudge. Like, how, you know, you don't want to just totally recreate the wheel here. It's like, this guy has a long history of doing this. So we're not going to eradicate this in a session or a week or a month. Yeah. How can we nudge this a little bit to get a positive effect? And then if you got positive metrics, it's an easier sell job. Just say, look, we've tweaked your foot stance and you've gained three miles per hour and your accuracy has improved 8%, like those are wins. Hmm. Hmm. Absolutely. And I think we see it all the time where the huge overhaul, I was unfortunately in a program when I was 16, I had moved to a new program and I was getting taught a whole new way of hitting the ground stroke on my forehand. And, uh, I think this this nudge would have applied a lot better. Within three weeks, I had a, a wrist injury that took me out for for another three weeks. So, but these I really like this nudge principle that you that you're talking about. So, um, coach, just to to kind of go back a little bit, you had mentioned about these physiological aspects of of you know do we have the requisite mobility to get into these positions and, and so forth with, with the tennis serve, probably similar, I mean, similar to, to, to like a javelin throw. Uh, we see that it's not just, you know, glenohumeral external rotation that is, is, is driving this, you know, maximum external rotation of the shoulder during the serve, but there's a contribution of, um, you know, the upper torso, the thorax, 
can how how do we develop this mobility in a synchronized kind of manner apart from from serving like we we're trying to do different med ball type of drills and, and things like that and is there is there a greater benefit to maybe doing it that way versus just doing static holds for for from for flexibility or we need to play around with with these different modalities well so on some of my presentations, I have a slide, the, the, uh, the influencers of movement about a joint. And there's like 25 line items, tendons, ligaments, fascia, retinaculum, bursa, fat pad, you name it. Fluid dynamics in the joint. There's a lot of variables going on there. And so I'm a bit, that's my bias. I'm a bit hesitant to have myopic isolatory solutions because I, I just feel the human body's operating concurrently and all 25 of these mechanisms are involved in the matrix of control. So that's why I like the idea of a variety of forces and speeds and angles and alarms and, and whatnot so that we're challenging the matrix rather than one component of the matrix. Because if we overemphasize one component of this 25 item matrix, it's going to shift those other 24 items, whether we like it or not. Hmm. So I think it's a little more logical to gradually manipulate the system rather than a component of the system, if you will. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, I've been reading a little bit more about some of these older, uh, you see these older techs, older sports scientists from the 70s, the 80s, and the different kind of med ball schemes that they had developed for um, for various sports, really. And you see how how many different positions that they use. What, one thing that was really interesting, and I, I wanted to ask you, is that um, doing these kind of sub-maximal catch throw, because I know you have a lot of these routines. The first time I actually saw this routine was from a, some of your programming where you have these catch throw sub max med ball routines that the momentum of the ball kind of drives a certain position. So if you're doing like a hip toss, it kind of drives rotation a little bit more. If you're doing overhead, it might drive a little bit more of this arching uh, bending action. And what it had said was that when we do these at sub max for multiple reps, that we're getting better structural adaptations to the various uh, ligaments, uh, tendons, fascia, versus if we only do kind of this max effort work, and maybe that's just too neural, we're not going to get these, these, these other adaptations. What do you think? Yeah, of that? Well, I keep circling back to this idea of, uh, of a wide spectrum of forces, velocities, angles, duration of forces, duration of velocities, and all of that. So like in our med ball routines, we use all kinds of weights, you know, as heavy as 8K, as light as 2K. We use all kinds of ranges of movement, speed of movement, uh, whether it's a stretch shortening throw or concentric power expression throw. So they all have a place. It's just when do you use what, where, and how? Hmm. No, yeah, that that makes sense. And I guess it's that's similar to, to some of your plyometric stuff as well, right? You yeah. have light, lighter stuff. We had we had Matt McKinnis Watson, which I think you know he's doing his his PhD on plyometrics. I had him on the show last time, and he's talking about how his light tier, which is kind of similar to your rudiment uh, progressions, is is a little bit more, you're going to get these different adaptations that you're kind of, you're, you're more thickening the tendon and these structures versus your, your bounding and, and your, maybe your depth jumps and stuff like that. So they all have a different place, right? Can you, can yeah. you elaborate on that? Yeah. So uh, Keith Barr does a lot of cool research at Cal Davis on tendon physiology and tendon response. And you know, he's proposed certain types of isometrics and certain types of eccentrics and certain types of concentrics and interface, depending on the stage of tendon healing, uh, the tendon quality, the age of the patient. You know, there's a lot of variables that are going on there. But in the old days, it was kind of like, well, just, just do move. 
and then it morphed to well, let's do heavy movement. No, then it morphed to it's slow eccentric. Then it morphed to no isometrics better. So you got all these tribalists and polemics and binary thinking. Let's just step back and look at the spectrum. Are we dealing with the spectrum? Because every stop on the spectrum on tissue influence has value and merit. Mm -hmm. Now, at certain times of the year, age of development or stage and return to play, certain types of movement schemes should predominate or have higher influence. But I don't think that means you ignore the, the rest of the spectrum. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, do, do you see how doing maybe even some of your skill work at different intensities is, is similar as well? Will that yeah. have a, a different effect on tissue? Like if I want to play every single day, I may not be able to play every single day at max effort or max effort hitting. Yeah. So I'm kind of a weird guy. I'm more of a telescope guy as I age. When I was a young coach, it was microscope. I was dissecting everything at the submacular level and whatnot. Now I step back a lot of times and just watch what's going on. So the last 10 years, I've done a lot more NBA consulting. So I'll sit in the practice gym and watch key players, how they go through the session. And I've really locked into some of these guys that are rock stars in the game with long careers. Like, what are they doing? How do they do it? And then maybe if I get a chance to talk to them, you know, kind of discuss what I thought I saw yeah. or how they operate or was this typical and so on and so forth. And what struck me in a lot of these guys they come out, it's 10 a.m. They just come off a night game and whatnot. And they do certain things to get the day started and they do certain types of shooting and certain types of dribbling and certain types of movement. And it's a nice crescendo into the team scrimmage. And then in the scrimmage, they have moments where they push it and challenge, they have moments where they cruise and whatnot. So they kind of self-regulate the session. Mm. I think we see that a lot in, in tennis as well. And you know, we, we always talk about Federer and uh, I, I always send you some of his videos and stuff like that. And I mean, he does so much of this, this type of work that you're talking about, like for a minute, he might just hit really light. And then all of a sudden it changes. He does something different. I actually heard a story about his, his, his training where uh, one of the Canadian guys, cause he invites players once in a while to Dubai to do their their preseason and he had talked about um you know the the drills being changing so quickly the one second they're doing okay slice backhands at a pretty comfortable then all of a sudden he says okay I want you to to hit you know the ball away from me and I'm going to hit on the run and it's going to change and then in five minutes they they changed once again, the, the patterns of play and whatnot. So yeah, I think I, th I was just on a call yesterday with two really interesting guys, AFL football guys in in Melbourne, and I was talking. One of the icebergs that a lot of performance people stumble into is what I call rigidity of programming. Hmm. So the the menu items aren't fluid. They they don't know how to constantly re reorient the hierarchical emphasis. Or the way they do the menu items is too rigid. You know, I just call it, you know, concrete programming. It's it's just too rigid. There's not enough diversity or, or, or change in it or chaos. You know, there mm. we adapt to chaos. And if, if the environment's too sterile, too linear, too reductionist, then we've reduced the power of chaos to influence adaptation. Mm. So is this akin to kind of like this block training we're going to just do this for a little while and then we're going to move on to this and then this and yeah so this is a bit more of this random type of practice well see i think block training has a place in certain sport disciplines like maybe lift weightlifting or you know certain things that are really closed with limited movement expression demands but i've, I've always been by it to concurrent type training now, that doesn't mean that it's just pell-mell and it's random and it's chaos. 
you, you could have a theme, like say I determined my player needs more absolute strength. Well, I, I'm not going to write an absolute strength block, but I'm going to have certain manual items that address absolute strength. And during those moments, we're going to have high accountability. We're going to have discussion, induction, debrief. The player's going to know that this needs more energy, more focus, more purpose. But I'm not going to recreate the wheel here. We're still doing the other manual items. It's just how do we use our cognitive battery or our physiological battery to make that a point of emphasis? So I think you can have themes, if you will, without going all the way into what's called classical block training. Mm. I totally agree with that. And I think, uh, you know, that that's, that's something where even myself as a younger coach, I was too linear in my approach, you know, let's just do this, let's do, we're going to do this many serves or this many cross court forehands, not to say like, you're, there isn't a time and place to do some of that. Right. But this fluidity, this, this smoothness, this diversity, I think is, is, is pretty critical because this sport at a high level, it is chaotic, right? These guys. Well, I think it's stage of development or maybe stage of return to play. Like, you know, we're constantly doing these SWOT analysis at, at the moment, the environmental moment. Hmm. So there may be a place in time, like a young developmental person, yeah, you're going to be a lot more rigid and linear because they, they need that structure. They're not ready for chaos. Hmm. Or coming off a real severe injury, they may they may not have the battery system to deal with chaos. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Coach, I, I don't want to take up too too much more of your time here. Um, I want to thank you so much. I mean, this was was absolutely unbelievable. I do have one last thing because you were someone that kind of has pushed me to not only be a better coach, but you've, you, you're one of the coaches that said, you know what, continue doing the physical side and continue doing the tennis side and, and just do, do both of them. And we don't see that quite a lot anymore. Can you, I, I'm sure there's some coaches here that, that are listening that are, you know, either on the fence or maybe they want to do a little bit of both. Is, is that something you still advocate to try and be a little bit more of kind of a, a generalist, so to speak, and well, I'm I'm biased to being a universalist and a generalist, and you, you may not have expertise to be a, a direct influencer or manipulator or implementer of the specialty, but it's going to enhance your conversation with people that are providing those services. You're it's going to help you become a more discriminating consumer of services and who you put in your network and who's in the team around the player. And here, here's the thing that I constantly see. People don't understand the team around the player. Like it may be the, the skills coach and the strength coach and the therapist. And he said, that's the team. No, it's not. There's parents, there's spouses, significant others, teammates, friends, colleagues, agents, sponsors. There's always layers to the team around the team mm -hmm. and how you're managing the team sometimes is more important than the X's and O's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a nice way to end it. And I, I really appreciate that. And, and thanks again, just for being such a, a great mentor supporter and, and always, uh, always giving your time. It's, uh, it's, it's very much appreciated. Well, thanks for having me and big respect for the work you're doing and, and how you're giving back to the sport. I think it's uh a credit to the sport that you're doing, what you're doing, how you're doing it. I appreciate that. Thanks again, coach. All right. Be safe.